Good morning. It's so good to everyone, see everyone today. Is everyone doing okay? Amen. It's good to see you guys. Man, you guys can sing. And that, uh, that helps a preacher preach, you know what I'm saying? So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so thankful to be here and uh, just to get to worship with you guys. Um, if you have a Bible, I want you to go ahead and take that. And we're going to be in a few places today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Then we're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and 7. So Genesis chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. We're going to be camping out there today. Uh, if you're new here, I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, my name is Ethan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it is such an honor to have you worshiping with us uh, on this beautiful day. Now, to preface what I'm about to say, if you are new here, or maybe this is your first time, you came on a very special Sunday, uh, because today we are talking about sex, okay? There we go. Uh, we are going through a, a series on relationships. And so we've never done this before as a church family. This is the first time we've done this. Uh, but every now and then, um, we will go to a particular need or topic in, uh, our church, in our church and address that uh, just from the Word. And so usually we go through books of the Bible, but every now and then um, we will address a particular topic. And so we're going through relationships. And so the past two weeks, we have begun that journey. We began by understanding God's design for marriage and how it is an image of the gospel, a picture of the gospel. And so in that, we see, in the same way, we see uh, a husband's love for his wife as an image of Christ's love for the church. And so all of our marriages and the marriages that we aspire to have, if you are pursuing that, that they will point to Jesus. Okay, And so we see this biblical foundation for marriage and God's design of it in Genesis 1 and 2 his application of it in Ephesians chapter 5, and then his culmination of it at the end in Revelation. So if you are here last week, uh, it was super uh, awesome to have Alan Tate from the World Church in Florence, and he was here and he talked about dating. So for all you folks that are in dating right now, or maybe you are someone later on in life and you're discipling people through dating, the craziness and messiness and awkwardness that that can be, uh, he uh, gave us um, principles from the scripture and how to address and handle dating in our life and our season. And so today, um, we're going to begin talking about sex, and then next week, um, we'll talk about singleness. The reason we're even having this conversation and, and going through this particular topic is because it's a big deal. Um, there are many things that the world says sex is, what it should be for, what it should be like, how it should affect our relationships. There are hundreds, thousands of opinions and perspectives on what this is. And, and, and to be quite honest with you, the, the culture is not the best at getting that right. <laughs> and uh, we want to be a people of the Word, where we look to God, we look to His design, and how He has ordered this, and how it applies in our lives, so that, in our church family, we have a biblical understanding of sex, and, and then truly that our church will be a beacon of hope for a world that is full of sexual brokenness, okay? Let's just, let's just kind of clear the air here, that in this world today, and, and even you right now, whether it be sexual temptation or sin or brokenness from the past or something you are facing today, it is an issue that affects so many people, unbelievers and believers. 
And so it is so important that we look and see God's order in this and even the hope for the one that is struggling through any of the issues that come from sex. And so we want to see the goodness of it, and we also want to see uh, the challenges that come alongside the temptation of it and then all that lead our church forward in how he orders us according to his word. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to take this in, in two parts. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the creation of sex, uh, number one, and then we're going to talk about the context of sex. And so if you're a note taker, that's where we're going to be hanging out today. We're going to be talking about the creation of sex and the context of sex. And so the first thing that I want you to see today, to know just from the beginning, because we have to have this truth, is this. When it comes to the creation of sex, that sex is indeed God's design. That sex is God's design. We see his design for sex, and it begins in Genesis 2. So if you will look at the latter part of Genesis 2, starting in verse 24. So we see the creation account. Now we see the creation of mankind, specifically Adam and Eve, and this is what he says to them. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We saw that in week one with the institution of marriage. But now I want us to go one step further and see where this begins to relate and talk to us about sex. So he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in that first one, we talk about a man leaving his father and mother, holding to his wife, cleaving to her. But in this instance, I want us to focus on this phrase, one flesh. Now, when someone comes together in marriage, when two people come together, husband and wife, the two become one. And so if you've gone to a wedding ceremony, you will often hear the pastor, the preacher, give this truth that uh, the husband and wife come together as one flesh. Now, absolutely, there is a spiritual dimension of this, that we're coming together as one family, one person following the Lord together. Absolutely. Hands down, that is absolutely true. But there is also, and I want to argue for this, a physical, a sexual dimension to that passage. And I want to show you where this connects with Paul and his writing in the church of Corinth as he's addressing principles for marriage and then some of the challenges the church of Corinth is facing in marriage. So here it says, they shall become one flesh. But if you have your tab over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to point this out to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the middle of it, he begins to talk about sexual immorality. And so sexual immorality are sins that we commit sexually against our own body and ultimately against the Lord. Now, there's a variety of how these things happen, but he gives a, a very specific example that I want to show that just proves that, that this, is, this is what he is talking about, that there is also a physical dimension. So look at verse 12 in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. So if you're a note taker, you're going to have to roll with me because we got a lot to cover today. He said, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will be, not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And pay attention here. Verse 15, do you not know 
that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, points back to Genesis chapter 2, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So we see this example, a very specific example, in chapter 6, where Paul is saying this, this, the two will become one flesh statement. And he has taken us from Genesis in the writing in chapter 2, and he's given this account of a man who unites himself, has sexual relations with a prostitute. And he says that your body is not meant for sexual immorality. And right here he says, do you not know that if you do this, you are joining yourself to that person? Because the two will become one. And so my point is, in saying that, and just pointing here, that yes, there is a spiritual oneness, this dimension to two becoming one in marriage, but it is also a physical, a sexual dimension as well. Because we see that clearly portrayed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Make sense? This is exactly why he writes it out here. So we have this understanding that is a both and, both spiritual and physical relationship. And the reason I tie all that together, guys, is simply this. Is that we can faithfully say that sex is God's design. He has created it in Genesis chapter 2. He affirms it all throughout the scriptures that this is something he has made. Now listen, that is very different than what the world says today. That sex is something that we have control of, that we have made, that the culture says is, that they define it, the world defines what this is. But I want to be the one to just to point you back that this is not something that was born out of our culture, born out of our movies, our books, our in this was something created by God. Therefore, we must defer in all ways to Him and how He says this should be ordered in our lives. I have to say that before we go on to what the context of sex is. And so what we can know is that if God has designed it, here's what I mean. It is for your good. Like, it is a good thing. I understand that in generations past, usually in church, when we talk about sex, we're talking about usually one thing, and that's sexual immorality, right? And that is important, and we, and we will talk about those things. But it's in that idea that the idea that sex is a good thing tends to get diminished. It gets, to, it gets thrown out the door because we're always talking about how bad it is. But listen, it is a gift from God who, is, who has designed it into marriage so that husband and wife could enjoy one another and then even have the blessing of children. It is a good thing. We have to understand that we do not want to take a distorted thing and try to make it good. We have a good thing where the culture has distorted it and sin has distorted it. And so we want to pay close attention and understand this is a good thing and he has designed it. Okay, so enough of that, but we see that God has designed sex. He has designed this in marriage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the context of sex. And while there are a million things we could say, right, and a million applications we could get at, 
I'm going to try and, and, and to get to the one before, I think, before the most essential ones that we see Paul speak to from the Corinthian letters and then in Genesis right here with the Lord's writings. Okay, so I'm going to give you the four, and then we're going to go through them together. But this is the context of sex, how it should be ordered, how it should be applied in this life. The four observations that we're about to make are these, that within marriage, sex is enjoyed, that outside of marriage, sex or sexual immorality is fled, that throughout marriage, sex is sacrificial, and then finally, in light of marriage, sex is insufficient. So we see that within marriage, sex is enjoyed. Outside of marriage, sex is fled. Throughout marriage, sex is sacrificial. And in light of marriage, sex is insufficient. So let's begin walking through these. So back in Genesis 2, we're going back and forth to make sure you're awake and you're with me. We see that within marriage, sex is enjoyed. So if you look back at Genesis chapter 2, in that verse, on the beginning of it, he writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and what? Hold fast to his wife. That he should hold fast to his wife. Specifically that phrase there. And what we can observe from this passage is the beginning and the understanding of where sex is allowed and permitted and encouraged. It is within the context of marriage between a husband and wife. He clearly writes it here in Genesis chapter 2, but we see that sex is enjoyed within marriage. This is very different than what the world would say. That sex is permissible in any sphere of life, in any relationship you'd want, with no commitment at all. There are a variety, a million ways that people show and try to teach where sex is permitted. But here is the issue. If this is God's design, anytime we move away from God's design for sex and marriage, we see that the two that embrace it do not flourish. See, it's within God's design, it's within marriage that sex is enjoyed and that sex flourishes the most because it is exactly how he intended it to be, right? And so I want to encourage you, for those of you that are pursuing marriage, to save yourselves for marriage, for this moment where you will unite to the other and you will come together as one, both spiritually and physically. For those of you that are married, that your spouse alone is the one that you are to have this type of intimacy with. Is not to be with someone else. Is not to be with, uh, you know, a, even uh, within your own thoughts of another person. Where Jesus speaks to that in Matthew five and six, but is to be within marriage. I believe that makes sense. That sex is to be enjoyed within marriage. Genesis chapter two. The second idea here, the second observation we get, is that number one, within marriage, sex is enjoyed. But number two. Outside of marriage, sex or sexual immorality is fled. So you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul goes and he continues to speak to sexual issues in, in, that, in the teaching on sex and the church of Corinth. And it's in this passage in verse 17, you'll notice picking up where we were a moment ago in verse 
17, Paul writes, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul gives an exhortation to the church that is true for us now, that we are to glorify God with our bodies, and that we are to glorify Him in the means in which we save ourselves for sex, and in which married couples come together in intimacy. And so we see that sexual sin abounds, that there is a deceiver who seeks to lead you astray to abuse any type of sexual temptation and sexual sin that is possible. And the challenge of today is that we live in a time where the bar, the challenge to attain any type of pornographic material, have access to any type of sexual sin has never been more available and accessible. And that just doesn't mean just to go and be with another person, but even with what someone does in the privacy of their own room. See, when someone sins sexually, it's not just against someone else, but it's against their own body. It is against themselves and ultimately against the Lord. See, we are to glorify God with our bodies. This is what he lays out here. And so he gives a clear exhortation. He doesn't just say, walk away from sexual immorality. He doesn't just say, hey, just kind of make sure you have a defense up against sexual immorality. What does he say? He says to flee sexual immorality. And here's why I believe he says to flee. While there are all kinds of sin, there's all kinds of things that abound to seek to lead you astray and to lead you into darkness, Sexual sin being in your own body is different. What can enter in through just an ounce of sin into someone's defense can explode into a cancerous disease within oneself. There is something about sexual sin that leads people into guilt and shame and isolation. It it sidelines them and it puts them in a place of just total and utter darkness in a way that other sins don't, because it is done within themselves and against themselves. And so it's for this reason that Paul writes, it is not enough just to have this at bay, to have a simple defense. He says, you are to run from it, to flee from sexual immorality, to run away from this, because this sin is enticing, this sin holds people captive, and this sin will keep you in the dark. This is the power of sexual sin, and we should not underestimate it. We understand that it is a powerful thing. And believers all across the place fall prey to this more often than not. And so we're to flee from it. Alan used an example last week talking about dating. and talked about how like, more often than not, if someone's dating, they try to find the line. The line is this, you know, line where they're like thinking, how far can we go 
before something is simple, right? Well, the idea is we shouldn't be worried and thinking about how close can we get to the line of something. We should be running as far from the line as we can. To run to Christ, to run to Him and to let Him satisfy our every need and to flee from sexual immorality. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and and I just want to speak to this. I know that right now, that as I say that, that sex is within marriage, it's God's design, and say that we should flee from sexual immorality, you may be here right now, and you're thinking, brother, I, I have not run from sexual immorality, I have run to it. Right? Like, if we just level the playing ground, no one has a perfect scorecard when it comes to sexual sin. And so when we think about that, I know that there are people here today that as you came into this gathering today, you have a whole closet of sexual sin. And I know that when it comes to this specific thing, that when someone considers the weight of sexual sin, it can just be crippling. It can be agonizing. As someone wrestles with the ins and outs of everything that goes on in life. And I know that right now, as you think about that, and you may be thinking like, oh, man, I've, been, I've been a slave, I've been captive to sexual sin for so long, that it is tempting. It is tempting to think that this is what defines you. That because I struggle with sexual sin, or because you're walking through a myriad of challenges, because you are freely given in to these things, that it is easy to identify that that is who you are. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, your identity is not marked by your sexual sin yesterday, today, and in the future. Your identity is rooted in Christ. You want to talk about the greatest news ever? That it is only in Christ that He frees you and He cleans you and He forgets your sin. He remembers them no more. And so if you're a brother or sister here today and you are just overwhelmed by the sexual sin in your life, that you think that this is the essence, the core of who you are, that if you are in Christ, that is a lie. That is not who you are. You are a son or daughter in the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of the Father. And his word is clear that you are washed as white as snow. That he is freeing you from yourself. And that this freedom is meant to lead you into repentance. That you don't have to be a slave to sexual sin. You don't have to be a slave to lust. You don't have to be a slave to pornography. You don't have to be a slave to whatever variation of sexual sin it may be. But that is in Christ and in Christ alone that he declares you holy and righteous. And so if you are struggling today, you are wounded, you are broken in your sexual sin, I just want to call you to run to Jesus. 
and to allow His grace to be lavished upon you, as He says in the passage. You don't have to be broken by this anymore. But allow Christ to work in you and through you so that you will grow as a disciple of Christ. If you're in Christ, that sexual sin is not who you are, but you are identified in the image of Christ. So outside of marriage, we flee sexual immorality. Number three that I want us to see is that throughout marriage, sex is sacrificial. Number three, that throughout marriage, sex is sacrificial. If you look at what Paul wrote in chapter 7, he gives a very interesting principle. And, and it's not the typical one you hear in a Sunday morning gathering. But look with me in chapter 7. He keeps going. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We're going to talk about that next week, so hang on to that one. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So listen, we talked about this in our small group earlier, right before we met this. You can take the text, you can exegete the text, you can look at the Greek in the text, you can look at all these things. But the main bottom line of what he is getting to here is this, is that sex is good in your marriage, and generally more often than not. Okay, there he goes. There it is. That he says you are not to deprive one another. And so the idea is when it comes to sex, it is not about you, but it is about your spouse, right? It's not about what your needs specifically are, but it's about your spouse. It's about what they desire and what they want. And so again, to contrast it with the world, this is the complete opposite of what the world says, right? That sex is about your needs your desires, your wants, what you think it should be, and that everything should be revolving around you when it comes to sex. What the Bible says is actually the opposite. See, Paul wisely writes that you do not have authority over your own body, you or your spouse, but you are given to one another. And so one of the greatest principles going into this conversation is simply this. If you go into marriage understanding that sex is not about you, but sex is about your spouse, and that the best way you can serve them is by being sacrificial with your own life and in intimacy, this is exactly how he has ordered it. This actually solves a myriad of sexual issues within marriage because it takes selfishness and it turns it into generosity. Right? And so the idea simply here is when you are in marriage now or if you're pursuing marriage one day, consider the other person before yourself and watch how that changes the dynamic of your marriage. 
that sex is sacrificial. And just to go one step further without pulling too far on this, that if we understand that in marriage, we see that it is a picture of Christ's love for the church and how he died for her, that it is this ultimate sacrifice. One of the ways that we sacrifice in marriage is by our giving of ourselves to the other person. That principle itself is rooted in the gospel because we see Christ gave his life for the church. And Paul says, we do not have authority of ourselves, but we're gifts to one another. So throughout marriage, sex is sacrificial. And then finally, in light of marriage, sex is insufficient. Not the way you probably thought I was going to finish this. In light of marriage, sex is insufficient. Now let me explain. In 1 Corinthians 7, we see Paul write in that first verse where he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then later on, look at verse 8 or 6. It says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Here's what we see Paul writing about entering into 5, 6, and 7. We're going to talk about next week. Is singleness. And specifically, what we see alongside associated with that, celibacy. Now, when we think about this idea, we realize that at the end of the day, Sex is actually insufficient. It is a good thing. It is a gift from God. It is a blessing for a marriage. But at the end of the day, it will not fulfill your soul. When Paul writes, it's better to not be married. We'll talk about that next week. Part of that implication, part of that observation includes sex. That it will be better not to have it. And what we see from that is it is indeed possible not to have it. It is possible to go through this entire life without a sexual relationship with a spouse. It is entirely possible. If you don't believe me, look to your Savior, Jesus Christ, right? The one who wasn't married. And he went his entire life feeling the weight of early temptation by living a life of celibacy. And see, to contrast one final time, because I think that's the best way that we can frame up this conversation is that the world tells you that you need sex. You need sexual relationships and that it will fulfill your soul. Doesn't every movie point to this? Doesn't every book we read and every article that we see and the vast ethos of the culture points to that? That if you achieve sex, if you find this with as many people or in any variety or whatever person you want, that you will be made whole. But if you have dabbled in sexual sin at all, you know that it's actually the opposite. That sex outside of God's design, sexual sin outside of God's design, leaves someone void and empty. And we realize it's a lie. And so we realize and we recognize that sex is insufficient. It is a misconception to understand that sex will fulfill your soul because it will not. And so we go into marriage understanding that this is an amazing part of it, but it is not the sole reason and it is not the bedrock of who we are. Because what we learn from John 4 with the woman at the well 
is that Jesus says, I am the living water. And if you drink of this living water, it will well up in you eternal life. And it is there and there alone that you will be satisfied. See, folks, even though sex is insufficient, we are not left hanging to dry when it comes to the satisfaction our souls need. Because when it comes to following Jesus, we understand that while sex will not fulfill our souls, money will not fulfill our souls, a new mortgage, a new car, a job, an accolade, a position, an achievement, any of those things will fall short. But when it comes to Jesus, he will fulfill all of your life. He will fulfill your soul. He will fulfill these longings that you have. And it is in him and him alone that you can persevere through this life to the end. Because he is all you need. One of the issues when people struggle with sexual sin is that they believe deep down that if they commit this, then they're going to feel better on the other side. But those cravings, those longings for whatever it may be, are hunger pains for more of God. Because we are craving something that only God can satisfy, which is this eternal satisfaction for our souls. And so if you're here today, and perhaps you are one that I've mentioned earlier, that has just been struggling through this journey and through this life because of sexual sin. I just want to call you today, if you have never trusted in Jesus, He will fulfill every longing and fulfill your soul in a way that nothing else in this world can. If you have never trusted in Him, you have to look no further because it is in Christ that He will save you. No matter how deep or dark your sexual sin goes, no matter how vast your pursuits of everything in this world are, we recognize that He will satisfy us. And so I just want to call you to trust in Jesus today, to trust in, with faith in Him, and He promises you this, that He will save your soul. You will be made white as snow. You will be made a new creation, and you will be adopted into the family of God. For the rest of us today, I know there are many, many ways that this applies, but my humble encouragement to you and challenge to you today are to take these principles and to apply them to your marriages or the one you're wanting to pursue and to give all of this to God. To say, God, we're not going to let the world determine what sex is. We're not going to let my desires determine what this looks like. But God, we're going to let your word do this. And it's in his design that I believe you will flourish the most and enjoy his gift and how he ordered it. For those of you today that are struggling through this, and maybe you want to talk to someone about that, as we finish today, I just want to let you know that we as a church are here for you. Or if there's a way we can encourage you in anything that we've touched up today, we just want you to know that we're open to receive and hear anything that you're pursuing through. And that we would be glad to walk arms with you, to pray with you, to encourage you as you battle sin, as you strive for purity in your marriage, as you seek satisfaction in that, and ultimately in your pursuit of God.
Let's pray together, and then we will get going to a time of invitation.